Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. This is Dr. Robert McGoring with Outliving Cancer. Today I'd like to talk about a topic of great interest to me, a topic on which I've lectured and have studied rather extensively. It's the topic of human tumor biology as evolutionary biology. Now, this begins all the way back in 1869 when Charles Darwin published his book, The Origin of Species. He was examining biological phenomena around the world on his trip on the Beagle. And he talked about observations of animal development that were unique to their environment. And he defined something called natural selection. So we, we can think of cancer biology as a microcosm of all biology. And when we do that, we can begin to put in perspective the role of the same events that lead to species evolution in cancer cellular evolution. Now, the reason that cancers play out so quickly is that cancers grow rather quickly. Not that they're driven by growth, but many, many cells dividing, even infrequently, will add to the population quickly. Most cancer cells <clears throat> divide at about the same rate as normal cells, which is every one or two or three months in most tissues. So the cancer cells really distinguish themselves by their wanting to stay alive longer and having more offspring. But nonetheless, there's a lot of growth dynamics. And when you create a Darwinian situation in a cancer setting, you'll see much the same play out. So using the natural selection process, there is an environmental stress. In this instance, the cancer cell doesn't have enough blood supply, oxygen, nutrients. The cancer cell is therefore stressed and confronts a need to adapt or die. Advantageous changes, adaptations, that, for example, provide the cell more glucose or a capacity to use glutamine or, or a way to use other nutrients or, or get new blood supply, whatever the new attribute, whatever the new finding, if it is advantageous, then it responds to the environmental stress and that cellular population grows out as the winner and becomes dominant. And the same thing is true of mammals or anything else as it is true of cells. They're, they're all going down the same process. So this was something called evolutionary gradualism. And it was known as gradualism because, you know, the average human lives 70 years, the average dog lives, lives 10 or 15. So it takes kind of a long time for dogs or people to adapt to their environment in a way that leads to success. And that's why species arise over hundreds of thousands and millions of years. But you can really speed that process up at the cellular level. And we do that experimentally in situations with cell growth. So that evolutionary gradualism that had characterized Darwin's work was suddenly disrupted a little bit by a guy named Stephen Jay Gould, who lived between 1941 and 2002, a really brilliant scientist. And what a, 
exciting guy to read. His books were like the thickness of a phone book, but he wrote so elegant, eloquently and elegantly on the topic of punctuated equilibrium. What is that? Well, it's disruptive events that lead to sudden changes in populations, an earthquake, a volcano, something that changes every aspect of our existence, and we must adapt immediately. And so there are genetic counterparts to that punctuated equilibrium that began all the way back with Theodore Bovieri in, in the century before the last, who as a physiologist was looking at the phenomenon of aneuploidy. Aneuploidy. Aneuploidy is where you break your DNA and take a piece of one and put it on another. It's like an asteroid hitting the Earth. And aneuploidy is chunks of DNA getting split up, and aneuploidy occurs more than we like to think. And the most severe form of aneuploidy is called chromatripsis. That's where the DNA gets blown up like a hand grenade. And if it can possibly reconfigure itself, things are very different from then on. So what all these processes lead to is what's called tumor heterogeneity. Cancer cells are rising with different features and jumping around to make the most of a new environmental stress. So I'd like to introduce you to a very, very important concept that has fundamentally changed the way I think about all cancer biology, completely, completely reoriented my thinking, and I think we'll do the same for you. Let's think of cancer biology truly as evolutionary biology. So, a human cell living in the breast or prostate or stomach lining finds itself under stress. As I noted earlier, that stress could be any number of things. The withdrawal of a hormone like estrogen. It might be the loss of a nutrient like glucose. It might be the loss of structural features and stromal connection through the fibroblast part of the tumor environment. It could be anything. It could be lack of oxygen, blood supply, whatever. So the stressor creates the emergence of tissue niches. Tissue niches are new environments, changes. You know, there's a volcano and suddenly uh, uh, Arizona is a coastline. So, I mean, things suddenly, bang, it's different. We're different. And you have to adapt. Arizonans have to become surfers. So, in that regard, the, the new environment creates a new niche, and the cellular environment leads to cells adapting or dying. So, these emergences of, of tissue niches, that is, the breast epithelium that doesn't get enough estrogen, or the gastric mucosa that doesn't get enough glucose, or the pancreatic cell that is not getting enough blood supply, whatever, whatever it is, that new stressful environment forces cells to use anything at their disposal to survive, or they die. The story ends. So the only story we read is the one from the victors, the ones that win. All the other cells died off. And with the emergence of these new niches, there is what's known as phenotypic adaptation. Phenotypic adaptation is where whatever works, you use. For example, if you're in a battle, if you're in a war, and you're fighting with a guy, and you see this in movies all the time, 
and you're shooting at the guy and you run out of bullets, you throw the gun at him. What? Guns are supposed to shoot bullets. Well, when you run out of bullets, it becomes a projectile. So, so cells do the same thing. Cells use whatever's at their disposal. So if you're supposed to be shooting and you run out of bullets, you throw the gun or whatever. And in the same way, this phenotypic adaptation, using what you've got at hand to make the most of things, leads to a new cellular feature, a new biology, a new ability. And that adaptation, evolutionary adaptation, provides the new cellular population. They've gone from one group who were hunter-gatherers to a new group who are agrarian. They're growing their own grain or whatever they're doing. They did something different. There weren't enough animals in the woods to capture, so they started growing their own food. And they became different. They adapted to an environmental change that allowed them to succeed in a way that their predecessors didn't use. That's phenotypic adaptation in a cellular level and human adaptation in our history. So at that point, cells might survive by using different abilities. For example, let's say there was a flood. Okay, so you want to survive the flood. Well, the lucky people own boats, and they take a boat and they float around. And the people who aren't so lucky get a uh, inner tire and they inflate it and they float around an inner tire. And then another group get the roof of the house that just lifted off and they float around on that. And, and the next group happened to own a surfboard and they float around on that. Well, at the end of the day, everybody's floating, everybody's surviving, but they're all using different tools to get there. It's not one way to solve the solution. It's, it's a lot of ways. And the, and the surfboard and the inner tube, and the boat, and the rooftop that's floating, all of those serve the purpose of keeping you from drowning. And in that way, you're still alive, but you got there differently, and that in biological evolution is called convergence. That's where everybody converges on the same outcome, even though they use different tools. And that is fundamental to this discussion, because you see, when cancer cells adapt to a new environment, they don't all use the same gene. One cancer cell wants more food, and it upregulates KRAS. That's sort of a fuel signal, increasing certain nutritional capacities. Another cancer cell, also in need of food, upregulates phosphonostal kinase. Yet another gene, another cancer cell upregulates the young gene MYC, MYC. Another cancer gene might upregulate vascular endothelial growth factor, which grows more blood vessels and brings all the nutrients. You see, the thing is, at the end of the day, they're all floating around in the flood, staying alive, using different tools. And that is convergence. Same problem, different solutions, ultimate success. Now, when that occurs, as the cancer cells adapt to the new environment, as they use whatever tool at hand, and when they converge upon a successful outcome, they all look around and say, well, what are we doing here? And one of them might say, well, you know, I used to be a stockbroker. And, and the next one says, well, I was a, a physician's assistant. And the guy on the surfboard says, uh, I'm a CPA. And, and the person floating on the rooftop says, uh, I'm an architect. But once they get to the point where they're trying to stay alive in a flood, 
all of their prior life, all of their prior functions, all of their prior successes are immaterial. And the cancer cell, like the person, the person who doesn't need to be a CPA anymore, they need to learn how to swim, those people regress toward a fundamental function, a basic biological existence that keeps them alive, even if they're a CPA or a physician's assistant, that's no longer important. What is important that they stay alive, and that's what happens in cancer. Once the cancer has figured out how to stay alive, and once it, it, it has come to a successful solution to its imminent death, after that, it really doesn't care anymore that it was supposed to make milk, like a breast epithelial cell in breast cancer, or that it was supposed to make gastric acid, like a gastric cell that makes acid for digestion, or that, that it was supposed to make enzymes, like, like a, a cell arising in the pancreas, or that it was supposed to make sweat or, or whatever. It doesn't really matter what it used to do. Now what matters is can it stay alive, can it succeed, can it, can it uh, confront the, the uh, stressors that got it there. And when that occurs, the cells lose their biological functions, or at least those that they were put on Earth for, and become completely driven by survival and success in their new niche, and that's cancer. It goes from a cell that's deprived to a cell that learns how to survive the deprivation to a cell that uses anything at its disposal and ultimately regresses away from its original function to serve a new function, survival at all costs. Now, if we apply a gene analysis to all this, how do we know what gene is actually going to give that cancer the survival? We don't. All we can really do in cancer is to look at the end product and try to address it. It doesn't really matter if a cancer like a person had a bad childhood or, or made a bad investment. That doesn't matter. It's now an angry person that needs something. And, and in the same way, I don't really care what gene leads you to your success. I'm worried about your success. Cancer is not supposed to be successful. Cancers succeed at the expense of the human body. So this new concept of cancer, this evolutionary biological system, says that don't worry about how it got there. Worry about that it got there. Worry about the phenomenon of cancer, not the etiology. Don't worry about how it got there. I don't care what gene. Worry that it's there and it's succeeding and it's eating your lunch. That's cellular biology applied to therapeutics. I don't care what the genes are. I don't even have to run gene profiles most of the time. What I want is what drug stops that success story from succeeding. And in this case, cancer success is our failure. So we have a job to do, and that job is to confront cancer in its evolutionary state and make sure that we're dealing with the end result of that process. Now, there are examples of this, really good examples of this, and I, I can quote one from a, a published series that I used in a lecture. It's a very interesting story, and I'll just regale you. It's a story by a very accomplished investigator from the Dana-Farber in Boston named Alice Shaw. She's a, a specialist in lung cancer, and she works in um, a disease primarily called ALK. The ALK is a mutation that's found in many lung cancers. She's one of the best, it may be the best of all in this field. So she wrote a paper in uh, 2016, which I thought was very interesting because it was very parallel to my experience. And she showed that a patient who had this mutation, this lung cancer, was given the first-line therapy, a drug called crizotinib, and it worked. 
I mean, it's really great when it works. It's, it's, it's effective. It's not very toxic. It's, it's a brilliant example of targeted therapy. It would be great if we had more than 10 of them. Anyway, this drug worked really well, and they followed the patient until they broke through, until the drug stopped working. And at that point, they ran another genetic screen and said, gee, there's a new mutational event. There's been an evolution. There's been a new adaptation. The cancer cells that used to run on one fuel are now changed a little bit, and we've got to readdress this. So they gave a second-generation drug, a different drug. And when they gave the second-generation drug, again, they blocked the process, and the cancer cells went away, and the patient got better again. And then they gave a third drug, because as the second drug stopped working, they gave a new drug. So it was an accretionary process, giving drug A, and then giving drug B, and then giving drug C. Well, the problem is, cancers are always trying to outsmart their doctors. And in this instance, the cancer kept dodging the bullets. And it finally dodged the bullets all the way until they tested it a third time, and they found that the original drug was going to work, and they gave that, and the patient got better. Now, that's a very nice story, using a gene profile that worked. But that works for one gene. That process worked for one gene. There are thousands of human genes. We can't only treat one person successfully. We need global measures, biological measures. And those measures are phenotypic. They're, they're cellular biological. So if you had given me this patient's tissue, I could have picked those drugs. I test them all. I could have picked those drugs right off the bat. I wouldn't even have to run the blood test with the genomic profiles. I would have just said, use this one instead of that one. Anyway, so that's the process of phenotypic cellular measures trump the use of genomics every time, every time. And as you can see, cancer cells are trying to outsmart us every chance they get. So I'd like to tell you a personal story which very much parallels that reported study. And this is about one of my patients. It's a really nice story. Um, this was a 49-year-old gentleman who had suffered from hepatitis C. Up until recently, we didn't have very many good treatments for that. And so hepatitis C was a life-threatening illness that could result in cirrhosis. I mean, it was really bad. Transmitted by blood product, it was very bad. And so he was being considered for a study that was being conducted jointly by UCLA and the Veterans Administration in L.A., and they were looking to give him a, an interferon-based therapy, and he was being readied for the study. And as he was going through the process of accrual, which means they do tests and lab tests and x-rays and scans, they found a large mass in his right adrenal gland, the gland that sits on the kidney. And I mean a large mass. So they biopsied it, and lo and behold, unbeknown to anyone, he had metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. He had cancer. Nobody knew it. They only found it by accident. So they said, well, well, this is pretty advanced cancer. It started in your lung. It's in your adrenal. This is not going to go well. So let's stop worrying about the hep C for now. And let's treat you with chemotherapy for your disease. And they gave him a, a combination I'd helped develop, carboplatin plus gemcitabine. Very nice, relatively well tolerated, and it worked. So, so in uh, March of 2005, he started on treatment with a carboplatin and gemcitabine, something I would have probably fully agreed with. And he got better. I mean, a lot better. 
And he felt well, and he was back to driving his Norton motorcycle, and he was happy, and everything was going well. But it didn't last. Seven or eight months later, his disease progressed. Now, in 2005, 2006, if you had lung cancer that failed therapy, and nobody had any other good ideas, you were placed on hospice. Now, you know, at 49 or 50 years of age, the prospect of, of just plain old waiting to die is unappealing. So he learned about my work, and he called my office staff, and they uh, arranged for him to come to our facility uh, in Long Beach. And, and he was admitted to the hospital, and a surgeon was, uh, was uh, contacted and consulted, and the surgeon uh, took him to, to a mini thoracotomy, a little surgical procedure in the lung, and, and got out a piece of this lung cancer for us, because it started in the lung, and we got a piece. And I happened to make it, be making rounds that day. I was chief of service, and I was walking around with my staff, and I uh, came upon his room, and his uh, blonde woman stepped out and said, Oh, Dr. Nagorni, so nice to meet you. Uh, Rick is here. He's uh, really looking forward to meeting you. And I said, uh, Who are you? She said, Well, I'm Rick's uh, sister. I'm here from Florida. I'm visiting. I want to be here for a surgery. I said, uh, What surgery? Oh, the surgery that your office staff had arranged. So I realized this was something that was sort of done without me knowing about it. I mean, not that I was against it, but I just, I wasn't in the loop when they arranged all this stuff. And we had a very good colleague, a delightful surgeon who did, was very kind to work with us whenever. So my staff had arranged all this and I, and I introduced myself and he was very pleasant, young guy, slender guy. And I told him we'd do our best and we found a treatment that worked. It was a, a combination, a different combination. It was called a cisplatin. Uh, plus irinotecan, not widely used in America, but very widely used in, in Japan where it was developed. Anyway, it worked fine for him, and he did terrific. I mean, he went back in a remission, back. He drove his Norton motorcycle down to Long Beach. He's got his chemotherapy and went home, and everything was going swimmingly until about a year later. And he presented with abdominal pain. And uh, this was now one year later, October of 06, and he was, he was symptomatic. And at first I thought, well, maybe the abdominal pain is gallbladder disease or, you know, something simple. But no, no, it wasn't. It was cancer. It recurred. It come back in that right adrenal area, which had originally gone away and come back. So contrary to community standard, this is a guy that failed not one but two prior therapies. Contrary to community standard, I looked at this relatively vigorous young guy who had done beautifully on the first treatment I'd given him. I said, well, let's take this out. And I remember going to the tumor board that I chaired and saying, would anyone be willing to do the surgery? And a surgeon raised his hand and said, sure, I'll do that. I'll, I'll do that surgical biopsy. So we sent him to the uh, surgeon. The surgeon did the surgical biopsy. We got the piece of tissue. And lo and behold, he was exquisitely sensitive to a drug that targets a very specific pathway. Unexpected. Very unexpected. In fact, completely unexpected. So we were pondering, how could this guy have gone from treatment A, benefit, then failure, to treatment B, benefit than failure, to treatment C, unrelated to anything he'd ever gotten, and there was no evidence of it before. Evolution. Evolutionary biology. We had placed a stress on this guy's lung cancer. We had said, we are coming for you. And the cancer cells did their best to defend themselves, and they could not succeed. And the first treatment given at the Veterans Administration in 2005 worked, but only so long as it took for the evolving population, the evolutionary process, to select for a resistant population. And when that occurred, 
luckily, we could find a second tool to beat this new population, this evolutionarily changed population. We found a new tool, and we gave that second combination of chemotherapy that works through different mechanisms and that captured these now resistant cells. But that also was inadequate to eliminate every last clone, every last cell, due to the heterogeneous nature of cells. And once you place that second evolutionary stress, that selective pressure on this population of cancer cells, when we did it the second time, a whole new clone grew up, a different clone. And they were so different that they had nothing to do with platinum and arinotecan or platinum and gemcitabine. They were surviving by virtue of a growth factor mutation. They were selecting out a growth factor mutation that was completely unrelated to any of the drugs or treatments or combinations or anything that had been given before. This was the new breakout. This was the mammals after the dinosaurs were gone. So we said, well, what treats mammals? What treats this guy's cell? And it turns out there's a pill. We put him on it. And that patient remains in complete remission today. I'll be seeing him on Wednesday. Today, in 2021, this is 16 years since that patient was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. 16 years. Why? Because with each evolutionary zig and zag that his tumor took, we had a solution. We didn't have a gene solution. We had a cellular, biological, phenotypic solution. We had a solution that told us what his cancer cells were going to do, not why they should do it, but that they did it. That's cellular biology in real time addressing the complexity of human tumor biology. In fact, this is one of many cases, I may tell more in the future, where we go in again and harvest the cells that are now the dominant clone, and we probe them for their biology, and we give the new drug and the new drug and the new drug. I don't have time today, but I'll tell another story that is even more striking, more uh, unbelievable for a patient who's now rounding seven, eight years on multiple different drugs, each selected based on tissue culture. So to address cancer today, we're going to need better strategies. And our strategic approach, the McGurney Cancer Institute, the ex vivo analysis approach, starts with, with a strategy that says select the best drug or combination the first time. Don't just give something. Give the right thing. Use the best drug the first time because it is really only the first time when you the first treat patients that you're likely to really knock the tumor out and win. You never get a second chance at first-line chemotherapy. Always use your best shot. The second strategy is to combine drugs synergistically, that is, supra-additively, so that when a drug is given, it's not just a drug, it's a drug combined with something that worked together, specifically selected, based on that patient's biology. Use drugs that work together for a reason. The next strategy is don't be shy about repeating biopsies. If a patient has recurrence and they're progressing, if you ask a patient, would you be willing to undergo a morning day surgery to have a liver biopsy or have a mini thoracotomy and be home the next day in order to save your life, they'd say, yes, absolutely, I'll do that. Now, it's not community standard in most settings, 
But if you can change the course of someone's outcome by doing a small surgical procedure, most people will have one day's discomfort for two or three years of life, or in Rick's case, 16 years of life. And we did multiple surgeries. So repeating biopsies is very appropriate. The next strategy is to combine cytotoxic drugs in novel ways, but more importantly, to prepare our, uh, the panoply of options for the newer classes of drugs, the targeted agents, that specifically and selectively influence cancer's ability to survive, and not only to use targeted agents with or without uh, classical chemotherapies, but to use combinations of targeted agents. I have a delightful patient who has a 12-year history of a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. It's a particularly bad disease. And in the laboratory, we've been examining how new classes of drugs interact, and I'm going to start this patient on a novel low-dose combination of two targeted agents. And we do that because we have the rationale, we have the science, we have the insight that we know it's not just a good idea, it works. And finally, we will use increasingly, as I've written in a blog recently, immune therapies so that you get combinations of cell death, vaccination of the immune system, and upregulation of the immune system. That is very powerful, and we will see much more of that. As we get smart, we'll combine the best drugs with the best immune therapies, and we'll cure patients. I think that cancer will finally become more curable once we get smart about how we treat it. And I'd like to finish by just suggesting that really, fundamentally, the future of cancer medicine will probably move us away from all these drugs designed to stop cells from growing and and we'll drill down onto what it is that makes cancer cells succeed, and that is bioenergetic survival and metabolic existence. Cancer cells win because they have better batteries. They have a better energy source. They have a better way to stay alive, and they use energy to stay alive, even if we don't want them to. So I'll leave you with a quote from a lecture I gave at the University of California, Irvine, where I teach. And I finished my lecture by saying, as we examine cancer therapy, through the lens of evolution, we recognize that no cancer cell can survive without energy, the biologic basis of which is metabolism. So in future discussions, we'll be looking at the fundamentals of human metabolism as a driver of human cancer, an area of great interest to me.